All right, testing, one, two, three. Are we on? Good. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for the opportunity to be here again this evening. And uh, Todd, this is a tough crowd. They're staying here. I appreciate it so much. I wanted to make this introductory comment. <clears throat> I know very well, and I was even asked to explain something like this, I know very well that a whole lot of what I'm going to say you're not going to remember or probably understand. But you'll get the point, I think. And that's the point. I don't believe in my heart of hearts that you can give proper reverence to the God who made us without going into the details. Now, most folks live their lives without all those details. And that's fine, because God gives you enough to have faith in him. And that's just fine. For me in my house as a science guy, I need more detail. And there's a whole lot of other folks that do too. And one of my passions for this, personal experience, as a young person, I went through a period of doubt and serious questions as to whether my belief in God was reasonable. Because I was listening to very intelligent people tell me it wasn't necessary and even foolish. And I had to deal with that on a personal level. And for me, in my house, I needed more than what my preacher gave me because he wasn't a science guy. That's why it's passion for me to share with you some things that I have discovered in my last 60 years. And I'm a strong believer, stronger believer in God today than I was then. Are you hearing this? So if you, don't, if you leave here tonight saying, he lost me for the first two minutes, don't leave here without this notion. This man has studied deeply in the sciences, and he deeply believes in God. And then you challenge yourself. Don't you just believe something because I said it, or because Todd said it. We're both students. We do not pretend to be God or to impose upon him. Was that a fantastic lesson we just heard? My guess is if we went around and asked you a survey question, you'd never heard anything quite like that before, would be my guess. <clears throat> Nor have I, Todd. That was well done and well thought out. It has some implications even for my lesson tonight. <clears throat> so I'm going to hopefully incorporate some of that in presenting what I'm going to talk to you about. So thank you for giving me just a few minutes to explain all of that. And now let's get down to the science. Are you ready? <clears throat> I hope. All right, let's see here. Where's my thingy? We're talking tonight about the poor design argument. We had a great introduction to that whole notion just now. I'm going to take one particular illustration of that and drill down and look at some specifics about it. 
And the example I'm going to take tonight is the human eye. He said a good bit about that during his talk, and I want to expand on that a little bit. Before I do, though, I want to remind you that there's a lot of areas of science where this argument is made, not just the human eye. That's just one example. It's rather broadly made, as you heard. And one of those has to do with junk DNA, and I had a whole lesson planned for that one. In fact, I tried at first to put both of those in this lesson, and you can say, thank you, Lord, that I didn't. Because <laughs> that's two whole lessons at least. But I did want you to know that there's a very interesting book by Jonathan Wells. He's a well-published and well-respected scientist that's called The Myth of Junk DNA. So in the place of my whole lecture, there's a book. Junk DNA is a myth, folks. But it's certainly been imposed upon your DNA. Because what was said about it is most of it's not needed. And as Dawkins would say, it's, it's just as well you might not even have it. Well, that's pretty brazen. And the fact is, the more we've learned in the last 20 years about DNA, the more we've found out that that junk is doing. And there's a whole lot we still don't know. And the other thing I wanted to say, this thing sounds like it's going in and out, is it? Is it me? Todd, you didn't have any problem with this. I put the thing on, it starts to start messing up. Folks, there are going to be things always in your life that you cannot answer. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Always and forever, you're going to have to have faith fill in the gaps where you cannot observe it. There will always be things in the sciences that you can't explain. When I first started hearing about junk DNA, I didn't know how to give an answer to that. It was disturbing. Because I don't believe God would make DNA, 95% junk. That doesn't make any sense to me. Now, I understand that's an argument on what I think God would do. But just common sense says to me, he's not going to make something that's 95% junk. There's something wrong with this. And I didn't have an answer for it. Let me ask you, did Abraham have an answer when God said, you're going to have a child and he's 90, close to 100 years old? No, the science of his day told him he's too old to have babies. Well, his wife had babies. But he believed in anyway, didn't he? Because he trusted the God whom he served. There will always be that, folks. You can never be so certain about God from the sciences that there's not going to be any questions. You listening? And when we get finished with all the lectures we'd ever want to give, there will still be questions you can't answer, and your belief in God and your trust in Him is ultimately going to be just that. Because Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. 
Now, I'll confess to you, all of that introduction was not part of my lesson tonight. So you've got to give me an extra five minutes at the end. I'm kidding. Maybe. So I want to talk about the human eye as it relates to this argument about poor design. Let's start, as we always do when we're doing this kind of a series, in a church building with what the Bible says. I'm not going to turn to these passages because we've already read them before. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm says, the natural world testifies of God's existence. The book of Romans chapter 1 says the same thing. From the things that are made, you can infer there's a maker. That's the design argument. And that's what we've been making in this series. Dr. Jerry Coyne, who also Todd quoted, one of the new atheists of our age, and by the way, the four horsemen of the new age atheists are Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. They so describe themselves the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they outspokenly will say to you, belief in God is over. It is not only unnecessary, it's foolishness, and in some instances they will say it's dangerous, as Dawkins would say, the God delusion is dangerous. Because it leads people down paths that are ridiculous and just stupid things. Jerry Coyne is not one of the four horsemen, but he's certainly among the new atheists. And part of the reason I think this kind of a series is important, and I commend your elders for their plan here at this church to at least every four years have something like this. So that all the high schoolers have heard something like this during their high school years. It's a wise move. Jerry Coyne would say to you in his book, Why Evolution is True, written in 2009, perfect design would truly be the sign of a skilled and intelligent designer. Isn't that what Todd said in this last lecture? Perfect design. Who says what perfect is in the first place? And secondly, perfect design. It's got to be perfect the way you think it is. To testify? Imperfect design is the mark of evolution. In fact, it is precisely what we expect from evolution. Things just happen by nature. They have no purpose. Nobody was designing anything. In fact, you remember in the blind watchmaker, the only watchmaker is blind. They have no purpose. And look, one of the philosophical implications, if you're going to accept evolution as your theory of how life got about, is you have no purpose, folks, any more than a roach. You have roaches here? You know what we do on... Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. You don't have them like we've got them. The joke around there is you can hitch one up and ride him. You know what we do with roaches? And I have yet to have anybody say to me, how could you teach a feed a roach like that? But if the theory of evolution is correct of how you got here, you're no better off than a roach. In fact, they're better off than you did. They lasted longer than a human species, they would tell you. 
So if you're going to accept the theory, take it to its full conclusion. So Coyne would say, imperfect design sure looks like God didn't do it. And I would say to you, when you look at complexity, there's only two ways to answer that question. The evolutionary way says, complex organs or systems arose from simpler things by small steps over long periods of time. Small, contiguous, natural steps. Isn't that Darwin's theory? A creationist would say complex organs or systems could not have arisen without intelligent design. I don't know any other answer to that question. So you think about that. And what's happened in our modern world in public education is that the second answer to this question is excluded from the science classroom. I think I could win a debate if there's only one answer. And that's what's happened. Here's what Darwin said. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not have possibly been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. I appreciate a man who will say of his own theory, here's how you can destroy it. And that's what he said. Now, I believe there's lots of examples. We did one last night of the cell. How in the world could the cell, as complex as we've shown it to be, happen by small steps over long periods of time? If you don't have it all, it doesn't work. And that's the case everywhere you look for a cell. What about the human eye? Darwin himself said he lost sleep at night over the human eye. Trying to figure out how does that fit in my plan. And I can understand why. So here's what he said. And may I use a little bit of British English with you? To suppose that the eye, with its remarkable inimitable contrivances, for adjusting and for the different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberrations, could have formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. Was that good enough? I did that because I want you to get the emphasis. I'm firmly convinced Darwin would have said it just about that way. It's absurd, if you just think about it. Whereupon he proceeded to say why it isn't absurd. So I'm going to continue the quote. By the way, I brought his little book. Of course, this is paperback, and it's kind of small to read. But that little book, ladies and gentlemen, has had more impact on the daily life of human beings than any book other than this one, in my view. Because it has affected every facet of your life. Because when you interpret life in accordance with this theory, it only changes everything. 
Right? So is it worthwhile to consider whether this idea, as Daniel Dennett says, Darwin's dangerous idea, is true or not? I think so. So here's how Darwin proceeded on page 218. Yet reason tells me that if numerous, pause right here, if you were in a class with me, I'd have you take out your pencil and paper and write down the four things I'm going to tell you is his argument. So I don't think I can impose that on you, but I'm going to give you four things that he says right here. You stay with me. If you're serious, get out a piece of paper and write them down. Number one, if numerous gradations from a perfect and complex eye to one very imperfect and simple, each grade being useful to its possessor can be shown to exist. Number one, are there lots of eyes in the world that you can observe that have various degrees of complexity? The answer is yes. So that's reason number one. So you got that down? If further, the eye does vary ever so slightly and the variations be inherited, which is certainly the case. Would you agree that their eyes vary? Are your eyes just like your mamas and daddies? Maybe pretty close. I get to wear these thanks to my mom and daddy. Second argument, the eyes vary just a little bit and they are inherited? I don't think any of you would argue with that, even though Darwin had no clue how things were inherited. Not really. All right, let's go on. And if the, any variation or modification of the organ be ever useful to an animal under changing conditions of life, would you agree, class, that those variations might sometimes be useful to the next generation? Possible. Then, the difficulty of believing that a perfect and complex eye could be formed by natural selection, though insuperable by our imagination, can hardly be considered real. So his conclusion is, therefore, it's perfectly reasonable to think the human eye did evolve by small steps over long periods of time. There's lots of different kinds of eyes out there in the world. Eyes vary and can be inherited, and variations can help things. Therefore, the human eye evolved. That's the argument. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is precisely the argument that is still being made. Add on top of it the problem of a poor design. And you throw God out. So yes, as insuperable as it would be to your imagination, and absurd to the highest degree, that's what happened. And now, are you ready? I want to do this little bit of a lead-in. Because what I'm going to show you next is what's taught in the public school system. It's a TED talk about eyes. And it's very well done. 
And here's what I'm going to ask you to do while you listen to this. I am so tempted every time I look at this to stop it and interrupt it and shout about something. Because this little clip you're about to see is so full of just-so stories and nonsense. So I want you to first think about the audacity of what this, this little clip says. Just think about the audacity. Second, I want you to think about the argument that they make. I'm telling you, it's the same one I just read you from Darwin. And third... I want you to listen for the suggestion of poor design in that clip. And then finally, at the end, get the picture of what he says about how we might improve upon our own evolution. Okay? Are we ready, guys? And by the way, can I pause just a moment here and give a word of praise to your ITAV stuff? Because I have worked those guys hard. <laughs> Am I right, Eric? Probably more than he's ever done for anybody that preached here. <laughs> We've been practicing stuff and working together on this. You, this stuff doesn't just happen by natural causes, folks. <laughs> this was designed <laughs> and planned ahead. And those guys were wonderful in helping me with it. So I just appreciate you guys so much. You can't do this stuff without heavy IT. So here we go. I'm going to step aside here and let this TED Talk teach you. And I'm going to try my best not to interrupt you. Here we go. The human eye is an amazing mechanism, able to detect anywhere from a few photons to direct sunlight, or switch focus from the screen in front of you to the distant horizon in a third of a second. In fact, the structures required for such incredible flexibility were once considered so complex that Charles Darwin himself acknowledged that the idea of their having evolved seemed absurd in the highest possible degree. And yet, that is exactly what happened, starting more than 500 million years ago. The story of the human eye begins with a simple light spot, such as the one found in single-celled organisms, like euglena. This is a cluster of light-sensitive proteins linked to the organism's flagellum, activating when it finds light, and therefore, food. A more complex version of this light spot can be found in the flatworm planaria, being cupped rather than flat enables it to better sense the direction of incoming light. Among its other uses, this ability allows an organism to seek out shade and hide from predators. Over the millennia, as such light cups grew deeper in some organisms, the opening at the front grew smaller. The result was a pinhole effect, which increased resolution dramatically reducing distortion by only allowing a thin beam of light into the eye. The Nautilus, an ancestor of the octopus, uses this pinhole eye for improved resolution and directional sensing. Although the pinhole eye allows for simple images, the key step towards the eye as we know it is a lens. This is thought to have evolved through transparent cells covering the opening to prevent infection, allowing the inside of the eye to fill with fluid that optimizes light sensitivity and processing.
crystalline proteins forming at the surface created a structure that proved useful in focusing light at a single point on the retina. It is this lens that is the key to the eye's adaptability, changing its curvature to adapt to near and far vision. This structure of the pinhole camera with a lens served as the basis for what would eventually evolve into the human eye. Further refinements would include a colored ring called the iris that controls the amount of light entering the eye, a tough white outer layer known as the sclera to maintain its structure, and tear glands that secrete a protective film. But equally important was the accompanying evolution of the brain, with its expansion of the visual cortex to process the sharper and more colorful images it was receiving. We now know that far from being an ideal masterpiece of design, our eye bears traces of its step-by-step -step evolution. For example, the human retina is inverted, with light-detecting cells facing away from the eye opening. This results in a blind spot where the optic nerve must pierce the retina to reach the photosensitive layer in the back. The similar-looking eyes of cephalopods, which evolved independently, have a front-facing retina, allowing them to see without a blind spot. Other creatures' eyes display different adaptations. Anableps, the so-called four-eyed fish, have eyes divided in two sections for looking above and underwater, perfect for spotting both predators and prey. Cats, classically nighttime hunters, have evolved with a reflective layer maximizing the amount of light the eye can detect, granting them excellent night vision, as well as their signature glow. These are just a few examples of the huge diversity of eyes in the animal kingdom. So if you could design an eye, would you do it any differently? This question isn't as strange as it might sound. Today, doctors and scientists are looking at different eye structures to help design biomechanical implants for the vision impaired. And in the not so distant future, the machines built with the precision and flexibility of the human eye may even enable it to surpass its own evolution. So class, you see how the eye evolved over 500 million years. Did he make the statement in that TED talk, this is the best explanation we have today? No. What he said was, that's exactly what happened, wasn't it? Exactly what happened. Folks, most of that was a just-so story. The fact that you've got different kinds of eyes and different creatures in this world we live in, that's a fact. Does that mean that this was the earliest one that evolved into this one that evolved into that one? That does not mean that at all. In fact, did you notice that one of those things when he compared us with a squid and said his eyes better than ours? But he noticed he said it evolved independently? Hmm, interesting. Look, there was so much wrong with that. I want to take it and shred it. But our focus tonight is to talk about the little piece. Did you notice that he said, as the creator's hand descended into remote distance, that we have in our eyes the leftovers of our evolutionary past? 
right? And then he proceeded to talk about how it's wired backwards. It's the design argument. And no creator would do that. That is an evidence of your evolutionary past. You think anybody has come up with the slightest notion of how evolution did that? How it got wired backwards by evolutionary process? When other eyes are supposedly better? There is zero information about that. But it sure wasn't God that did it. So, class, we now have to look at a little chemistry and a little bit about the features of the eye we do know, some of which we've only learned in relatively recent times. So here we go. There's the blow-up of the eye as it was known in Darwin's day. Most of that was already known by the time Darwin wrote in 1859. The physical features of the eyeball were pretty well studied by them. That's why he said it's absurd in the highest possible degree to think that thing evolved by small changes over millions of years. But if you listen to TED Talk, that is precisely what happened over 500 million years. But now, class, we can go down and look at that neural layer of the retina at this level. You see here? The ganglion cells, the bipolar neurons, the nuclear rods and cones up here. We can look at all of that under microscopic magnification in ways they could not do 150 years ago. And not only that, we can blow up this piece uh, way bigger into a much larger screen here. Here's the light coming in, and here are those optic nerves. Here are the ganglion neurons. Here are the bipolars, and here are the rods and cones up here with the pigmented epithelium up at the top. We can go down here and look at all this in detail up close. And in just a minute... I'm going to take one of these rods here and cones and blow it up and show you even more. And then we're going to get down and look at the chemistry inside the rod. Because we know how that all works now. And how it is you can see. And may I just say it right here, lest I forget to say it this clearly later. Frankly, I could, care about, I could care less, Todd, about the anatomy of the eyeball. It's important. What I want evolution to explain is the chemistry way down at the microscopic nano level. Don't talk to me about how this ball evolved. Talk to me about how the chemistry got started that allows you to see in the first place. They don't have the explanation for that. But let's talk a little more about this design business. It is absolutely true when the light strikes, the neurons, the optical nerve fibers are on the outside here. 
And the light has to travel through this whole mess to get up here to the rods and cones, which then receive it and process it. And then it is sent back down through these nerves and goes out through your optics, optic nerve, which goes to your brain. And by the way, did you notice he just kind of threw in here the, how the brain evolved at the same time? I mean, these people talk about this stuff as if it's nothing... Folks, the brain is only the most complex thing in the world. And the second most complex thing I'm going to talk to you tomorrow night about, that's our immune system. (laughs) Yes, it's wired that way. And here's what Nathan Lint said in his article, The Poor Design of the Human Eye, in his little The Human Evolution blog that he puts out. Here's a blow-up of that. Here down here are the optic nerves. You see them? And you have to go through these cell bodies and through this connecting layer and up here to the rods and cones. And why would anybody design something that's trying to observe the light when you've got to go through all this mess before you get to the optical sensitive things up here, which can then receive the message and send it back down here to the nerves? Why would it do that? And here's our favorite author, Richard Dawkins, which he already read this quote, so I'm skipping that one. But to say this much, each photocell is in effect wired in backwards with its wire sticking out on the side nearest the light. The wire has to travel over the surface of the retina to a point where it dives through a hole in the retina, the so-called blind spot, to join the optic nerve. It is the principle of the thing that would offend any tidy-minded engineer. You heard it? And here's a blow-up picture. So look, class, you can get this. Here's the front of the human eye. And the light comes in this way. Do you see here that the nerves are on the very first thing out here? The retina is behind the nerves, and the optic nerve is here. That, those nerves have to come down here and go through the retina to reach the optic nerve, so there's your blind spot. And besides that, when the light hits these nerves, it doesn't pick it up. You have to go through the retina and get to this back layer and then come back out to the nerves and then go through. That is a fact. That's the way it works. In a squid... Notice, the retina's on the front, so when the light comes in, it hits the retina straight out, and then it hits the nerves in the back, and then it flows to the optic nerve. There's no blind spot, and there's no interference there for it to get to the nerves. It goes right through those retina and then to the nerves. That's the one that makes sense. And so they say, there would be no blind spot if the vertebrate eye were really intelligently designed. In fact, it is stupidly designed. This man, George Williams, is willing to just say it out blatantly. While the retina of the squid is right side up. And so, folks, you folks who are believers in God, get over it. Squids have better eyes than you do. So they say. And the design of the human eye is nothing but a leftover of your evolutionary past. That's the argument. So, besides what all Todd said in the last lecture, 
which was very worthwhile thinking about. I want to show you some new things we've learned about the design of the eye that shed some new light on it. So, is the human eye really evidence against intelligent designs? Jonathan Wells, in his article in Evolution News, which, by the way, Evolution News is a great publication that comes out regularly. If you're interested in this stuff, get it. Start reading it. So, I want to share with you some facts about this. And to make sure we stay right on track, I want to get my material here. Because sometimes it's better to say with the guy who's really thought about this a lot directly. All right, you see this layout here? Here's the human eye. And what you have right here in this little circle, you have it blown up. That's your fatal little right there. This is a blow-up of that little piece. That's your retina. Okay, the light comes in from here, and it strikes the retina. And here's what it hits first. Here's where this layer of ganglion cells is. And here's the photoresponsive cells in the rods and cones. So the light has to go all the way through here. It's responded to here, and then it goes back to those... Um, cells of the nerves out here, and then it goes to the optic nerve. So what does Jonathan say about this? At the very back of your retina is a network of capillaries here. The light-sensing cell of a vertebrate retina requires lots of nutrients and vast amounts of energy. In mammals, they have the highest met metabolic rate of any tissue in the body. Right in here. Now, you probably lost you. There's more blood throwing through that layer right there, right in here, and affecting this layer right here. Let me go ahead and put that up there. That's the retinal pigment epithelium, RPE. There's more blood flowing through right here to any other place comparable to that in your whole body. The eye requires lots of nutrients. About three-quarters of the blood supply to the eye flows through a dense network of capillaries called the curiocapillaris, which is situated behind the retina. There it is. Oxygen and nutrients are transported from the curiocapillaris to the light-sensing cells by an intermediate layer called the retinal pigment epithelium. How do you get this massive amount of energy here? Through. You get it through this layer right here. And what is that layer for? It's to help maintain and cure and also feed nutrients to this whole system of rods and cones here. You with me so far? Now what you need to know in addition to that is the retinal pigment epithelium does not let light go through it. In other words, it's dense to light. Blood doesn't either. Both of these layers are absolutely critical to the functioning of this eye. And they're behind it, because if, we if it were wired the other way, these would need to be in front of it. And they would block the light before it ever got in there. In addition to that, what we've learned about is these special cells right here that run through the entire layer. You see those right there? 
Those are called Muller glia cells. And what's interesting about those Muller glia cells is they evidently act like light dispersers. So I want to read you some stuff about that so you understand what we've learned. Having the photoceptors at the back, let's see what I've got here. Having the photoceptors at the back of the retina is not a design constraint. It is a design feature. The idea that the vertebrate eye might have to have been improved somehow if it had only been able to orient its wiring behind the photoreceptor layer like the cephalopod or the squid is folly. Real eyes are much more crafty than that, says an evolutionist as he looks at the eye. A case in point are the Muller glia cells that span the thickness of the retina. You see this right here? There's that Muller glia cell. Spans the entire thickness. Now I want you to listen to me about what that thing does. These high refractive index cells spread an absorptive canopy across the retinal surface and then shepherd photons through the low scattering cytoplasm to separate receivers. Whew, you got that, didn't you? What those cells do is they take the light up through that layer and disperse it better than it would have done otherwise. The idea that these molar cells act like living fiber optic cables has been convincingly demonstrated using a dual beam laser trap. What we know now is that those guys act like, what did I call them? <laughs> Let me get back here. I'm going to use the words right. Dual beam laser traps. They help take the light that comes in down here and disperse it up through here and spread it out. In fact, when they get up here to the rods and cones, they divert the green-reddish end of the spectrum to the cones and allow the blue-purple end to go to the rods, which process those more easily as they go through. So what I'm telling you, class, is what we've learned about this design, it allows the light to be processed partly on the way through the retina, spread up better than it would have been otherwise, properly nutrished, which is there a word for that? Nutritionized, and maintained, and then sent back. And by the time it gets to those nerves and goes toward the optic nerve to your brain, it's already been partly processed. Muller cells in the retina assume the role of optical fibers and reliably transfer light with a low scattering from the retinal surface to the photoreceptor cell layer. This finding elucidates a fundamental feature of the inverted retina as an optical system, says Mr. France, an evolutionist. I love this picture. Now, it's a picture. But it's got the glial cells going down through and showing you how it disperses the light and spreads it out down here to the cones and rods properly, which can then send the signal off to the brain, already partly processed. So is that well designed or not? You see the question? Have you guys studied this, what I'm telling you? 
So you got it. Am I saying anything that's not exactly right? I love it when we can have a person who knows what he's talking about. So I'm not going to do any more with that tonight. Here's what I'm telling you. When somebody tells you something's a poor design, you better go back home and do your homework. And now I want to get really down in the nerd, in the deep. There's one of those rod cells blown up, magnified. Now we're going to take this piece of it. Do you see these discs up here in the rod? That's where the action takes place that allows you to see. So we're going to blow up that little piece, and here it is. This is a magnified piece right here that you're seeing here. So here are these discs. And you see that little piece of those discs right there? We're magnifying that now. And here's kind of how they look if you blow it up. And here's the plasma membrane with the channels. And what's going on right here is the chemistry that allows you to see. And so I have another book, Darwin's Black Box. And I'm going to read first from page 22. It says, each of the anatomical steps and structures that Darwin thought were so simple actually involved staggeringly complicated biochemical processes that cannot be papered over with rhetoric. Everything he thought would have been simple steps from one kind of an eye to another is a massive grand canyon of problems. Todd showed you last night how a light-sensitive spot works at the chemical level. You remember all that, right? Just the light-sensitive spot is so complicated, there's no way to explain how that got started. Much less how that light-sensitive spot evolved into this. And now let me tell you about the chemistry going on inside your eye every microsecond. And so here's a whole section on the vision biochemistry. You can skip this part when you're reading the book. Because he's written in such a way that it's highlighted these different heavy parts that you can skip and still get the point. I'm not skipping it. When light first strikes the retina, a photon interacts with a molecule called 11 cis retinal. He showed you a picture of that last night. This is happening right up here. So let me go to the next slide. Here's a blow-up of that. Here's rhodopsin. And 11 cis retinal is connected to it. This rearranges in picoseconds to transretinal. Picoseconds. Is that a word you use? Let me show you how fast that is. It's the time it takes light to pass the travel, the width of one human hair. <laughs> the change in shape of the retinal molecule forces a change in shape of the protein rhodopsin. There it is. To which the retinal is tightly bound. The protein's metamorphosis alters its behavior and now metaroptosin 2 protein sticks to another protein called transducin. Right there. 
The transducin tightly bound to a small molecule called GDP, but when the transducin interacts with the rhodopsin, the GDP falls off and the molecule called GTP binds to the transducin. So you get GT with a GTP attached to it. The GTP transducin metarhodopsin 2 now binds to a protein called phosphodiesterase, right there. Binds to all of this. When attached to the metarhodopsin 2 in its entourage, the phosphodiesterate acquires a chemical ability to cut a molecule called CGMP. Initially, there's a lot of CGMP molecules in the cell, but the phosphodiesterate lowers its concentration just as you pulled a plug, lowers the water level in a tub. So what happens is this PDE starts cutting this guy up and it makes it into five, so you're losing this stuff. So you get less of it, and the less of this you get, it starts affecting this channel here. So the sodium and the calcium starts flowing in, which causes an electrical imbalance across that thing, the nerve, which leads to the optic nerve, which goes to your brain, which interprets it as three-dimensional color pictures. That's it. That's how you see. Here's my problem with that class. If that's all that happened, you'd be blind in five minutes. Because you would be using up your rhodopsin. It'd be tied up in this complex. Your PDE would be used up. Your CGMP is going away, and it's going to keep going away if that keeps going. So in your eye, class... Almost at the same instant, a reverse reaction starts. Let's see if I can go to the next one here. Guanylate cyclase starts activating GTP and actually allowing you to reproduce the CGMP. This was the forward reaction I just described to you. What happens is the reverse reaction starts balancing it almost immediately so that over time, you keep your whole thing in balance like this. And folks, if that chemistry were not all there, you'd be blind. And that's the argument that Behe makes in this book. Tell me how that evolved by small stages over long periods of time. Don't talk to me about the eyeball. Tell me how that chemistry got started. By natural causes over millions of years. And we've got it all figured out, right? Listen to TED Talk. That is mighty close to lying, folks. because they know better. I say, with B, everywhere we look, from the macroscopic to the macroscopic, things look like they're designed. There's a loud, clear, piercing cry of design everywhere you look. So why not admit there's a designer that's associated with it? The scriptures say the hearing eye and the, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. And that's my lesson on that.
or tonight. Now, I've been asked in this series, when we close a lesson like this, which has nothing to do with talking about Jesus Christ, to go ahead and say to everybody in this audience, if we have said something tonight that helps you want to investigate more, is there a God or isn't there? Or that causes you to have a deeper appreciation for the magnificence of our Creator. I hope that it will give you the passion to keep studying and researching that. And may I suggest to you that the next place you need to go to this book right here, the Bible with its Old and New Testaments, and learn what it has to tell you. Because I'm convinced that this is a revelation from God to mankind to tell them what this amazing God wants us to do. And how much he loves us. So much that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, we have a tradition at the end of services that if there's somebody ready to obey the gospel, we don't want to leave here without giving you that opportunity. And what Jesus said was, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, and we're ready to baptize you tonight for the remission of your sins. If you're a believer, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and gave his life for you. And were you to come forward tonight, that's what we'd ask you. You believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That he died for your sins. And if you're willing to confess that, we're going to accept that that's the truth for you. And we'll stop everything, right, Reagan? Is everything ready? To immerse you in water. There's water here somewhere. I think right behind there. Where we can immerse you in water like Jesus said. And you can rise to walk in newness of life. A life given to Jesus and in service to this great God. So we're going to sing a song. We're going to stand up. If you want to come, why don't you come right now? <clears throat> oh,